For those of you who have been listening to Dear White Women from the beginning, or for those listeners who just joined us, and a huge welcome to you if that's you, you probably understand that this whole platform comes from our own deeply personal connections, not only to this work, but also to the world that we'd like to see in the future. As we find that it's often that personal connection that leads to this intentional, lasting change, as opposed to a quick social media post, a checklist that we know sometimes people are looking for, or some other one-off action that you know might lead to some individual short-term recognition, but less to actual movement and change. I love that you pointed that out because I think that's exactly why we loved speaking with today's guest, Stacey Sawin, who comes to us with her own deeply personal story as to why she created the platform called Finability, which is an organization that is changing and enhancing security for so many survivors of domestic abuse, especially from a financial perspective, because a huge percentage of survivors, and I just learned this through this conversation, they're experiencing financial abuse along with other forms of harm. So even if her story, Stacy's story, has nothing to do with your own lived experience, it's likely that someone you know can relate. So please listen, share, and if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, financially support on this Giving Tuesday, if you are able to do that. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. So my name's Stacey Sawin. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Finability, and I'm also a survivor of stalking. So, you know, sometimes the things that we build are created from deeply personal connections to what we want to see in the future based on our own experiences, right? And after speaking with you and reading your own story on the Finability website, that really seems to ring true. Can you tell us where the impetus for Finability came from? And, and really sort of, I guess we need to go like all the way back or to, you know, what you really went through from, like, say, 2015 to 2018? Yeah, so taking it back to 2015, I had just graduated from university, and I had moved to a big city for the first time. I grew up in a smaller suburb of Oregon and was living in D.C. and really excited to start my professional career. It really felt like the culmination of so many years of hard work and effort. And as cheesy as it sounds, it felt like my dreams were coming true in many ways. And shortly after I started working at a consulting firm, I was harassed by a manager that I was working with. And it became serious enough and made me uncomfortable enough that I decided to report him to human resources at the firm. And luckily, they handled it so well. They instigated a report and he ended up being um, fired um, from the firm. But unfortunately, that started a series of events and actions from him that escalated from just harassment to a very severe form of stalking. He sent many threatening messages to me and my family and my friends. He tried to get me fired from my job by contacting clients, um, sending messages to senior people at my firm, many other things as well. He even flew across the country from D.C. to Portland to harass my parents and make it known to me that he could access them. But systematically, he tried to isolate me from everyone in my life and tear down every support system I could possibly have. 
And I'm incredibly fortunate that um, even though I did lose some people in my life, my core friends and my family stood by me and my firm also paid for me to have um, legal um, support. So I was able to get a civil protective order against my stalker and eventually took it to the police who initially did not take my request seriously, but my company pressured them and actually had a person at the firm contact the head of the police department to meet with me. And at that point, they finally allowed me to file with the police and he was eventually found guilty um, in a court for stalking. And I'm really grateful that I had that support system because I can't imagine where my family and I would be today without it. But at the same time, I spent three years in and out of a courtroom and I saw dozens and dozens of women who were trying to seek protection from stalkers, violent partners, et cetera. And what was devastating is almost none of them had the resources that I did and almost none of them got protection. And it was never due to the validity of their case, but being able to really navigate the complexities of the court system and having the financial security to stick with it and keep pushing until they could become safe. And it was haunting to think how these women couldn't even get a restraining order from an abusive partner or stalker. And that led me to volunteer over six hours with um, women support organizations. And I was so fortunate that my employer sponsored me to get an MBA from London Business School. And while I was there, I took it as an opportunity to study entrepreneurship. And that's where Synability was born. I wanted to figure out how I could take this education and all these resources and opportunities I'd been given to, to help these women who didn't have the resources that I did. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing something really personal. Can we go back to 2018 for a second? You said your stalker was found guilty by a jury and you were doing a, on the Pacific Crest Trail. It seems like there was this conclusion to that period in some way with this marker of sorts. Where did that trail take you figuratively and physically? Yeah. So my stalker fled the country before um, sentencing could happen. And though it wasn't the closure I wanted, it was the end of a chapter. So before business school, I did take an entire summer to um, go hike the Pacific Crest Trail. And I think it was the beginning of my journey to healing. Through all the stalking, I had become numb in a lot of ways. And you block yourself off from a lot of feelings and people to protect yourself and also to make sure that you're always on top of everything. I always had a hypervigilance because I thought if I wasn't always on top of things and scrutinizing details that my family could be put at risk. But on the trail, um, there's not a lot to think about. It's such a simple lifestyle. You wake up, you eat breakfast, either hike north or you hike south. And it kind of is what it is. So it gave me the opportunity to let my guard down over time. And also just hours upon hours, days upon days of just thinking and reflection and there's something about nature as well that can be very healing and restorative. I love that. I think while that wasn't the closure that you wanted, that is closure and in a way, right, for you. And, you know, I want to go back to what you were saying when you said you had spent, you know, sort of three years in and out of courtrooms and you see survivors of domestic abuse and trying to get help. And as an attorney, 
I know that the legal system is deeply flawed in this country and also it's very expensive, right? So can you sort of enumerate for our audience who may still be listening and like, well, and may not fully understand, why is it important to financially empower survivors of domestic abuse, not just to have people believe their stories, but to give them this financial piece as well? Yeah, I'll answer that from both the lens of how financial resources can get you legal protections, but also kind of expand upon that because it really impacts every aspect of the survivor's ability to get safe. But from a legal perspective, in DC at the time, you needed to serve documents physically. So imagine there's someone you're terrified of and you're being asked to go hand them a piece of paper so they know to go to court. Um, Not very feasible. So then you turn to the police who will do it up to three times for you. But, you know, they knock on the person's door, they can choose not to open it. And that counts as one attempt. So many survivors just weren't able to get their harm doers court notices. Many couldn't afford childcare and they would miss hearings because of that. And many people are hourly workers. So if you have to go to court every two weeks to try to get the civil protective order at a certain point, you're putting the um, family at risk, whether it's providing food, making rent, et cetera. But in domestic violence specifically, 99% of survivors are experiencing financial abuse, and that means they're harm doers, limiting their access to cash, credit lines, physical assets. The average survivor has less than $200 they're able to safely access. So you can imagine it's very difficult to physically leave that harm doer because you might not be able to afford a hotel, rent, food, and um, financial security is also the most common reason why survivors go back to an abusive partner. It takes a survivor on average seven attempts to leave. Hi, this is Sarah. And this is Misasha, and we are the biracial hosts of Dear White Women, a podcast that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. If you're looking to get started in podcasting, check out Libsyn.com and use promo code DWWPOD to get up to two months of free podcasting service. With Libsyn, you'll get real-time podcast analytics, free podcast guides and tutorials, and everything you'll need to get started in podcasting today. Go to libsyn.com and use our promo code DWWPOD to start podcasting today. And check out Dear White Women wherever you listen to podcasts. Wow. And I noticed you used a phrase, harm doers, which I really appreciate. I haven't used or or heard that phrase before, but it makes an awful lot of sense and refer to people in that way. You know, while we're talking about companies that build things like companies for the sake of simply making money, right? And then you have companies that build things for the sake of making money and doing good. And then you have, you know, you're a nonprofit. So you're in a third camp of companies. So how has Finability changed scope since it's like, brainchild when you first sort of started thinking about it? And then how have you changed since the company started? Yeah, I see sustainability really as a bridge between survivors, um, their thought leadership and what they know they need, and the many resources out there that they, divert, <laughs> that they deserve access to. So when we were initially coming up with the concept, um, we hadn't decided what our business model would be if we'd be for-profit, hybrid, or completely nonprofit. but we let survivors decide. We interviewed 
over 100 survivors, advocates, and nonprofit professionals to really understand what are the financial barriers you're facing and what would it take for you to build financial security. And from there, um, a very important theme came up that it's not only making resources that can empower survivors, but it's building an institution that they trust is meant to serve them, has their best interest at heart, and will always put them above profit. And when we heard how important that trust was time and time again, we knew we had to be a nonprofit, very mission focused. And that has been a big shift for me. You know, I came from being a management consultant and it was always about um, delivering very intensive projects on time, below budget, and trying to build the business and expand um, our portfolio of clients. And now instead of thinking about growing the business, it's always growing our impact. And it's been such a rewarding shift, to be honest. I think it's filled my life with a lot more purpose and it's definitely helped me build a lot of patience. I love that, the shift from growing your business to growing your impact. I think that's such a powerful reframing, right, of work and the importance of work in this space. You know, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about race in this, not only in Finability, but as a woman of color with your co-founder, who is also a woman of color. How does race play a role in your work or in Finability's mission? Yeah, so we have asked survivors how race impacts their experience. And though um, domestic abuse impacts people of every background, it does disproportionately impact folks of color. And as we dug down into that, there were two prominent themes we identified. One is a third of survivors of color have been harassed or brutalized by police. So that takes away one of their main systems of support and where a lot of people would traditionally turn to. But additionally, there's a racial wealth gap and financial security makes it significantly harder to overcome abuse. So we have communities of color who have to deal with those intersectional issues. And as an organization, you know, we're building a survivor advisory committee. We're very dedicated to bringing diverse perspectives in, but it's an ongoing journey of talking to as many survivors as possible to understand how do we create unique programming, make information available that really respects and understands that intersectionality. Thank you for sharing that, because I think the points that you highlighted, right, treatment by the police, as well as the racial wealth gap are two factors that are so prevalent, yet often overlooked, I think, when people think about survivors of domestic abuse, right? And, and why didn't they just leave? Or why didn't, you know, they go to the police first thing? Like, I think people see it as so simple. If you're assuming that everyone starts out equally, which we know is not the case in this country. And so I really appreciate that you're, you know, digging into this as part of Finability. And so, you know, talking about Finability, it sounds so amazing, especially as you're talking to survivors and really building something that is, you know, we talk about a lot of times like people doing what they think should be done, right? As opposed to doing what the group who's being impacted really needs to have happen. And so I think that's, there's so much, I love what you're doing in this space because you're really leaning into what do the survivors need? What has their experience been? 
how can we build this? So where do you see Finability going or growing next? And I noticed on your website, you've got some big goals for Finability. So can you tell us about those two? We do, yes. We want to uh, financially empower half a million survivors by the end of 2025. And we've learned that 95% of survivors are never gonna use formalized support systems such as crisis um, hotlines, direct service providers, or talking to professional advocates. And instead, they're turning to Google to answer their most pressing questions about how to become safe. So we're a digital-first nonprofit. We're very invested in search engine optimization and making information that can not only help someone become safe, but build that financial security to remain safe and make that accessible to them online. So today, we have a financial resource guide that answers a lot of survivors' questions, no matter where they are on their journey, whether they're not yet identifying as a survivor, but recognize something is off in their relationship, if they're looking to separate from that harm doer, or if they're out and really ready to start building that financial security. And uh, we also offer financial courses online to dive a little bit deeper into some of the topics there. But longer term, I'm hoping we can expand into other programming such as credit building, microloans, direct cash assistance, because those are the things that survivors are asking for. That's incredible. 95% do not go through traditional means of, you know, these pillars of support that people think are out there to help. I know a lot of people want to do something, right? They want to offer help. But if platform is dedicated to white women, so if more white women hear this story and hear things about survivors and, and what they need, if they want to do that, be more grounded in the community around them that needs to help, like what would you say to these white women? Or, you know, if you could provide guidance to others who hear stories like yours, you know, making it sort of more personal and don't know how to respond, what would you suggest people do in response? Yeah, I think there's two really compelling options and ways that folks can empower survivors. And one, if you do have a story, I think it's so important to share it. Uh, my stalking experience kind of bridged the Me Too movement. So when I first was filing for protections, I felt completely alone and wasn't comfortable sharing what was happening because I thought it would be additional trauma and hardship I'd have to deal with when I'm already struggling with everything happening from my stalker. And when the Me Too movement happened, I was so shocked and surprised to learn that there was this entire invisible network of women who had similar experiences. And once uh, the court found my stalker guilty, I decided it was time to start speaking out and sharing my story and to my surprise, like dozens of friends and family members came to me to share their stories. And for many of them, it was the first time they had ever told anyone, which can be really healing. So I, again, just encouraging people, if you do have a story, it can have such a ripple effect to, to put it out there and help a lot of other people in their healing as well. But also not everyone is a survivor. So the other thing I encourage folks to do is not only to believe survivors, but take that additional next step of validating the experience that you're hearing. Every human has a bias to think that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And as a result, when someone's experienced something as traumatic as domestic violence, stalking, or sexual violence, that survivor is dealing with so much guilt and shame and a lot of 
unfortunately, negative comments from other people that maybe aren't intentional, but because of that subconscious bias, a lot of people accidentally blame survivors. So if you can say, um, not only I believe you, but I'm so sorry this happened to you and it's not your fault, that can make all the difference to a survivor. I love that, just that additional step, right, of not just believing, but validating. I think that is a step that we often overlook in people's stories. And that is, you're right, that makes a huge, huge difference between sort of feeling seen and really feeling seen and heard and understood. So thank you for sharing those. I feel like we have learned so much about finability, and I'm so excited to see where well, and if people are looking for more information about Finability, about you, where can they find everything out? Yeah, so our website is www.finabilityus.org. You can access all of our programming for free, no barriers there. And um, you can always contact us through that page as well. Uh, we're always trying to understand who we should partner with and what the gaps are. So. You know, if you're a survivor or um, you're looking to build financial security and we didn't answer your question, those are the most valuable messages we can receive. Um, feedback is of the utmost important to us. I love that. Thank you so much, Stacy. This has been a pleasure. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing? Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>